Hello all and welcome to The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire. Uh, episode 9, can you believe we've got this far? Uh, and a long way to go, I hope. Um, Claire and Maureen uh, will be with me on this journey, obviously. Maureen is the lead of the practice that manages media and investment in media for Arthur D. Little, the world's oldest management consulting company. And her longtime associate is Claire Tavernier, who has worked in the industry, comments on the industry and advises to the industry on all things media. Hello, Maureen. Hello, Oliver. And also, hello, Claire. Hi, Oliver. And as usual, we have a packed schedule. Um, and this week, we'll be looking at some industry reports, which sound dry, but they are not. Within the figures and the uh, writing and the contents and the conclusions are some fascinating facts about the business that we call media. So the first one we're going to look at is a Samba uh, report. Maybe Claire will tell us what that stands for, if it stands for anything. Uh, the state of viewership, Q2. Uh, 2022 in the United States. So this talks about um, what people's viewing habits are in the US up until reasonably recently, both in what they call linear and in streaming. I've recently discovered what linear means. It's basically all the stuff that isn't uh, streaming. It's broadcast. Um, and it is a fascinating report. I've read it as well. And uh, I've looked at some of the key facts. But um, Claire, uh, I know you've been through it fairly meticulously. What are the main trends that you're seeing from this report? The ones that are surprising and the ones that maybe are not so surprising? Yeah, so first thing to say, Samba TV is a, is a sort of relatively recent uh, TV analytics company. Uh, it's actually funded, founded by the people who created BitTorrent, so I guess they know their stuff. But uh, it, it's, uh, it measures, it gathers data through smart TVs. And it, so there, as always with these reports, it's really important to understand the limitations of the data that we have. This isn't, uh, you know, this, this gives us indication, but they have drawn a lot of, uh, they've had to make some conclusions based on incomplete data. They don't measure, for instance, the TV that people watch on their phone or iPad. It's only through smart TVs. They don't know how many people watch something. They just know that the TV is on, it's being watched. So it could be that, you know, five or 10 or 15 people are watching the show and that would still record as one watch. So some of the limitations, and obviously they're trying very hard for their sample to be as representative as the overall uh, of the overall population as possible, but it's not always possible. Uh, they only they can only share data of people who have opted in. So there's a number of things that we should just be aware of in that data. It it is a picture, and I think it gives some really interesting uh, data points. But it's it's you know it's not the gospel or the Bible. Um, what does it tell us? It tells us things that we knew and aren't entirely surprising. It reinforces uh, a few things that we've already talked about, and there are a few surprises along the way. What it does say is that fewer people are watching linear TV, especially younger people. They've switched off in drones, and they're watching streaming instead. Uh, the only thing they tell us that is still being watched on linear TV is sports. It dominates linear TV ratings in a way that you know was always the case, but it's, it's certainly becoming stronger and stronger, especially, again, in younger audiences who really only watch sports on linear TV. Uh, so those are some of the, the, the interesting things that it tells us about linear TV. It also goes into 
streaming habits. And that's where it becomes quite interesting because we don't have a lot of data around streaming habits because none of the streamers release, release any data in terms of who watches what, etc. And that, that, there is very interesting. We learned that the streamers depend a lot on some of their uh, some of their key shows. So, for instance, uh, there's one stat which is percentage of viewing household that only watched one program in on one of the streamers. And for something like uh, Amazon Video, is 55%. This is pre uh, Lord of the Rings. 55% have only watched The Boys. 35% of viewers have only watched Encanto on Disney Plus. 33%. That's a very big number. Uh, it, and this is within the quarter. 33% um, of people on Netflix have only only watched Stranger Things. So there's, there's definitely um, a sort of focus on the highest grossing titles, which which will encourage streamers to continue to invest more and more in, in, cont in content that actually drives audiences. Uh, but it also tells you how much the streamers are relying on their best performing titles. For Netflix, it is absolutely Stranger Things, which had really a huge, gave, gave them a huge boost. But, you know, it's finished now, I think. I mean, there was about nine hours of content in, in the last six episodes. So hopefully they, it's going to take a break. And uh, interestingly for Disney+, Plus, it really underlines their reliance Primarily on Star Wars, but and also to a slightly lesser extent on Marvel, which which is you know really where most of their viewership comes from, uh, especially in terms of new programming, which is a bit concerning because there will be a fatigue at some point uh, around those titles, and it also shows that HBO Max is suffering because they had a couple of mid-sized hits, but they haven't quite been able to renew their stable of content. And it is harder. What the conclusion of the report very clearly is that it's harder and harder to surface new content on these platforms. There's just too much of it. So these are my highlights. There's a lot in that report. It's it's very um, it's very full and we should probably give the, the a link to people somewhere so they can go and download it if they want more information. But those were my highlights reading through it. Yeah, fascinating. Maureen, what what were you um what were you, what did you pick out? Anything different? Um, well, well, it is. I would I would concur. It's a, an amazing um, report, um, and as Claire says, it's 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 affirmed some of our um, our own sort of maybe anecdotally based observations on the market for streaming. Um, but one thing that I picked up, which I thought was fascinating, that and probably builds on some of the topics that Claire and I have been discussing, and and you, Oliver over the last uh, few episodes. And, and this is around uh, what can we extrapolate from viewership um, uh, as we move into, say, the Netflixes and Disney Pluses move across to AVOD. Um, and, and, and it's fascinating that one of the, um, one of the uh, outputs here uh, was over three quarters of the premier uh, viewership often occurs within the first two weeks when these new shows are released and so for me that's fascinating because i'm i i am often um debating as with claire um the the windowing strategy of film releases and i just wonder and we know that a lot of the uh, the films uh viewership is probably and the gross revenues are probably um at you know between 70 and 80 percent of the total say box office uh, revenues uh, in the first uh, three weekends. So uh, this sort of tallies quite interestingly with how people watch 
these major shows in their in their homes. So if you extrapolate a couple of things from that, I think I think it's going to be interesting uh, as to how um, these streamers now talk to uh, and try to sell uh, their advertising inventory and talk to the agencies. Um, about the type of uh, advertising they can put to these shows, so they can get, I think, significant, um, you know, high yields, uh, high income per uh, number of minutes. Um, I don't know what they're going to call it as we go down the Avon <laughs> um, uh, route, but I think they can and will be able to show a significant um, target audience or audience data against those shows for uh, monetizing those shows on these new Avod platforms. So so I thought, I, I thought it was quite fascinating. Um, I've always understood that viewership uh, in, in the film world is uh, always in that sort of short window, but I hadn't appreciated how significant uh, the viewership is for, you know, the Kardashians, the Lincoln Lawyer. I mean, they, they, they go across about five or six uh, different uh, programs, you know, the, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi, I mean, almost 90% of the viewership, you know, up to day 15. So that's within two weeks. So yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating report. I urge everyone, as, as Claire says, to, to look at it, review it. Um, I know various of these uh, charts have been um, hovering over um, some of the LinkedIn pages uh, in the last uh, few weeks, but there's some, there's some really good material in this. Yeah, yeah it's, a great, uh, it's a great report. What I find really interesting is that we know that Netflix, Apple TV, Amazon, all the streamers are trying to figure out whether to go for full season drops or episodic drops, meaning do you just put the whole season on and then get this this massive peak that Maureen was describing. So strangely things, 40% of people consumed it during the first five days, so essentially over a weekend which is brilliant and gets you this massive peak, but then you have to constantly recreate that peak. Or do you go with smaller episodic peak, which has been the Apple TV strategy, for instance, of really, and to some extent the, um, the Disney Plus strategy very often, of releasing episodes every week so that you don't get the same impact, but you do get returning users. And one of the things that the Samba TV also alludes to, although it doesn't go into a lot of detail, is the, is the idea of subscription cycling dropping four seasons will encourage subscription cycling. Subscription cycling is when you subscribe to Netflix for a month and then drop that subscription and then subscribe to Disney Plus for a month and then drop that subscription, et cetera, et cetera. Um, weekly releases make it harder to cycle subscriptions. And so they may become much more attractive as churn increases, as people are looking for different ways to cut their expenses. So I think that's, that's interesting. It, there are arguments looking at this. There is definitely arguments for a big boom big bang release uh, uh which will get you advertising dollars but i think in terms of subscriber management the weekly releases are gaining ground i actually think netflix has done started to do it for some of their shows as well yeah i think they have i think they've gone down that appointment to view route mm -hmm. which they've uh, they've learned lessons you know from uh, the the traditional um, or, um uh terrestrial players of old yeah it's rather sad, isn't it, if we uh, lose that, uh, oh, a new episode of uh, Blah 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 is coming on. Let's all sit down and watch it. But that just seems to be, uh, that just seems to be dying. Is, uh, I, I read the bit that said Avon It's not, it's down. not, Oliver. It's not, Oliver. It's coming back. It's absolutely oh, coming back. There, yes, there, there was, there's been two years of let's have the whole season drop in one go. Uh, and it's now all absolutely coming back to weekly releases because... 
then you can make it last for longer. In fact, House of the Dragon is a great example mm -hmm. you know, of a show that is weekly released. Uh, so is the, um, I can never remember the name, the Ring of Powers on Amazon. Those are weekly releases. Uh, Apple only does weekly releases with their shows. You have to wait. I know, because I watch a lot of them. It's very frustrating. I don't want to wait. But you do get into this, oh, the new episode has dropped. Let's watch it together. So Netflix was the holdout, but they are moving to this weekly release schedule. So it's definitely coming back. There's also this phenomenon of, of enjoying the, uh, the latest release together, but not in the same room. My uh, son's girlfriend lives in Germany and uh, they would watch, actually, you're right, they would watch new releases. They'd watch it together, but they weren't physically in the, same, in the same location. What does it mean when it said in the report, AVOD drives down multiple subscriptions? Is that what you're, is that connected with what you're talking about? Um, it, they, I, what it means is because there's more, there's more available uh, on adver free advertiser funded platforms people are less likely to take up subscription people will you know people will take up subscription if they if they want content that they don't think they can get elsewhere we in the uk don't have that many free avod platforms there are this one essentially which is well there's itv and, and channel four their their catch their their online platform is avod as in you can watch it without paying a subscription but uh, in the US, quite a few of the streaming platforms have, a, have an AVOD model which, or a freemium model where there's a free tier with advertising and then you can pay to remove the advertising. And so as people are, you know, faced with a cost of living crisis, they're going to be turning to those AVOD platforms where they, they can still get content that they enjoy, but they don't have to pay a monthly subscription. Got it. Yeah. 14 billion hours of linear streaming. Um, was included. That's incredible. Um, Maureen. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add that um, the there are some idiosyncrasies around the US market versus sort of, say, looking at the UK market. And as Claire alluded to, you know, we've got a very good, strong PBS, so public service broadcasting, so a PSB market, whereas the US doesn't. And so, you know, there'll be a gravitation towards sort of paid for content or ad funded uh, content. And so that's why we're seeing a, a proliferation of um, uh, fast channels over in the US, say, compared to, uh, to here in the UK. The other things that I found interesting, um, Spanish language up, uh, kids TV down. And um, if I had to guess what the top linear advertiser was, I'm not sure I'd choose insurance. But um, and then when I look back at watching TV, then there are quite a few insurance um, adverts coming up. So massive in the US, which is uh, kind of weird. So I looked at the takeaways from the report and it was talking about incremental ad strategy, omni screen, which I'll ask you to explain, Claire. Uh, and the importance of good data, which for for someone who works in the data scientists is always good to hear. What do they mean about the importance of omniscreen, Claire? Yeah, I have, this is a new word that they've made up, but uh, I, I and obviously you people now consume on multiple screens. I consume on. Yesterday, I started a movie on Netflix on my phone and finished it and watched the middle in my. This isn't a normal occurrence, but I watched the middle of it in my computer between meetings and finished it on the TV. Uh, and that that's extreme, but it does happen. People switch from one screen to another, and as you. Uh, as an advertiser or as a platform, you want to understand, you want the full picture. 
despite what they say, I my understanding is Samba doesn't really capture omni-screen viewing because they don't capture certainly don't capture viewing on on uh, mobile devices. But clearly, that's something they're invested in. If you're an advertiser, so you want you want it's very important for you to understand in what context people are watching your ads because you will show a different ad depending on the context in which they're watching it. Um, so that's why it's a very big part with streaming being so big, becoming so big. It's a very big part of analytics that's going to grow. And it's very difficult because what you have to do is associate a certain mobile device with the smart TV. And, you know, that that creates data protection issues potentially uh, and uh, lots of other questions. And people don't always use the same devices and they may have a work computer that they used to watch Netflix. It is actually quite complicated to track people across multiple devices, unless you're Netflix and then you know because the, you're logged in. But these are people who are trying to do this without the Netflix login data. In terms yeah, of uh, just picking up, uh, it is very tricky. There are a few, a few other things that you mentioned. Kids, I think we're going to have a guest on the podcast soon uh, for the first time ever and talk about kids viewing and the changes in patterns in kids viewing because I think that's going to be very interesting. And so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, Spanish language is increasing because it's there, I suspect. For a very long time, there was limited uh, offer in terms of Spanish language content on American TV, partly because in on broadcast TV it was harder. There is more, uh, and a lot of programs are now offered in in dub version, and that there's a demand for it because there's a very large Spanish speaking population in the U.S. I, for, for me, this is something that's happening because it's there, and it wasn't there in the same quantity and quality before. And I think insurance is an interesting sector that relies very, very heavily on qualified leads. And they are benefiting from the fact that in theory, at least, some of these smart TVs allow you to um, target your advertising, at least to a specific cohort, rather than just to anybody. For, for an insurance broker, the most important thing is to address, it's to address the right type of people at, the, at, you know, at any specific moment. So they will always, I think, be ahead of the game when it comes to innovative advertising. And building on that, actually, there's, there's also, yeah, there's, there's, there's a staying with the insurance uh, point. Um, again, don't forget this particular report is uh, uh, based on US um, data and, and, and customers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because we're always using the US uh, as a proxy for other markets. Um, and similar, you know, sort of consumer patterns apply to um, outside of the US. But insurance in particular, uh, outside of the US and in particular the UK, it's a heavily regulated uh, market. So, um, you know, it's, it's not the same in the US. Most people you know, buy their, want to be influenced by certain providers, buy their own insurances across either healthcare, you know, to their auto insurance or travel insurance and whatnot. Um, so so for them, there's a big push. I don't know if you've ever been in the US. Uh, I think the, uh, the disclaimers often read out are longer than the actual commercial for the product itself. <laughs> so um, so there's, a, there's a big, there's a big push insurance and Car manufacturers, uh, car auto companies are often in the top two, um, uh, with the third possibly being financial services as a um, as a spender on advertising. Um, and then go back to the Spanish point, uh, Spanish language again. Yeah, that's not a surprise um, either because um, 
because of technology, uh, again, playing to your skill sets here, uh, Oliver, and your fascination with data, um, the, 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 move, the, move in, the move in automation of subtitling and a very sophisticated uh, translation ability um, has really driven a lot of foreign language um, uh, programming, um, German, uh, Spanish, Italian, um, and that's really been well received uh, internationally, um, including dubbing. And of course, some of the European countries are, you know, he heavily relied on dubbing for for, for programming. Um, but there has been a move to sort of subtitling, so that that's a, that's an easy add-on, and that makes those programming much more international in nature, and then they're they're exported. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, yeah, I, I, I've um, we, we're working in natural language programming a lot in our uh, part of Arthur D. Little, and the, the um, strides are being made very, very quickly. And you can even tell the subtitles are so much better than they used to be. They used to be almost comical uh, when you watch subtitles when the TV was turned off, particularly when sport was on. It was always worth watching the subtitles just for the hilarity. And moving on now to the UK. So the other report that you kindly shared with us, Claire, was the MIDAS report. And MIDAS is an acronym. It's the Measurement of Internet Delivered Audio Services. That's actually quite a clever acronym. Better than most of them. They're a bit convoluted. So the Midas report, it covers November and December 2021, so it's a little aged and it's only in the UK, but it is very data rich. So it's basically telling us things about how we consume audio, um, internet delivered, although strangely vinyl is a category. So uh, vinyl tends to be delivered through a needle, if I remember correctly, rather than the internet. But anyway, it's included as a category. You might there might be some reason why it is other than just it's a way we consume audio so the takeaways from that um claire what were your favorite bits and bobs and snippets that gave us insights into the way we're uh, consuming audio these days yes i mean as always i'm going to do the usual disclaimer again you know this is a, a, a report that was commissioned by Raja, which is the radio joint audience research, research organization so and, you know, they had a vested interest in making radio look good. Let's put it that way. Uh, but uh, the, the reason I'm aware of, of that report is actually was part of the panel uh, because they, they, they came to my house and asked me if I would be on it. And so I answered all those questions. And so I, I, I do think it's, I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's true and it's the right research, but, it, but it, it has a vested interest in making radio look good. And radio does look really good. This is the first thing that we can say. What, it co what comes out very, very strongly is that live radio still has an 89% weekly reach, way above any other form of audio listening, including on-demand music, AI, Spotify, podcasters, relatively very small despite how much time we spend uh, talking about them. Uh, and then there is, you know, the, the age difference is obvious. Many more younger demographics listening to on-demand music and podcast, much more um, older demographic listening to CDs and cassettes. Vinyl uh, is actually quite quite uh, fairly distributed across the ages with a, with a peak for the 15 to 24 year olds. We'll not get into that, but but live radio r remains dominant, even in the fifteen to twenty-four year olds. They are at seventy-five percent, and I I thought originally that this was passive listening. So you know you are listening to the radio because it's on, and you're not really choosing to listening to it. But it's not really. It's mostly about driving, and sixty percent of um, sixty percent of of the live radio hours are done while driving, driving or traveling. That is by far the main thing that people do when they're in a the car. Uh, and 
because of that, it still is dominated by AM, FM radio, which is the bit that you have in your car or, or a digital radio. This, the other way that people listen to, listen to, um, listen to radio interestingly, especially younger audiences is, is on their mobile phones, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, and, uh, not the, not, not the older people who still have a, you know, an old style radio, but it, it's definitely become a much bigger part of the way people listen to radio. So an interesting, very positive look at the audio, uh, the radio part of the, of the audio landscape. It relative, it, it puts in, gives a little bit of relativity to the rise of podcasts, which remains small, the rise of on-demand TV, which is very big, but not eating as much in, into um, radio uh, and everything else is quite small. Yeah, those were my key takeaways, I think. What did you think, Maureen? Yeah, yeah, and, and I, um, I, I, guess, I, I guess I was always of the view that um, audio is, is still important. For sure, but the but the segmentation of uh, this particular study I thought was really really helpful, uh, and and in particular the age profiling. But what I what I liked and and the chart that I fell onto and, and keep looking at is the podcasting share percentage share and how people and when people you know listen to podcasts. I mean a significant significantly high proportion of them uh, listen to podcasts while they're working, <laughs> which oh, I found that. that was really weird. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> working and studying I mean it's interesting because sometimes if I'm this is of course anecdotal if I'm if I'm list, if I'm writing something uh, or a series of emails if I'm writing a report I put classical music on if I'm if I'm if I'm writing emails and just generally you know communicating with people I put a podcast in the back background and then I just lower the volume when if someone calls in to me you know um, and that could well be Scott Galloway <laughs> or Pivot Again. Kerry Swisher yeah, or, or, or the politics uh, podcast, or, um, or or indeed, you know, Preet Bavara. So if there's something really quite topical, in fact, I like to listen to that in the background, and then I absorb that that knowledge, and then and then bore people thereafter with my with my facts that I've picked up from other people. Um, so so I think working studying is probably it did surprise me how high it, how high it was, and of course then just driving and travelling, which I know a lot of people. You know, now they're commuting again back into London, for example. You know, they're listening to various podcasts as they're traveling. So otherwise, yeah, I, I, it's an interesting, it's another interesting report uh, that uh, it's worth taking take a look at, particularly with the rise of the podcast. But as you say, overall, it's small, uh, but it's very interesting. The statistics that sit behind, you know, those segments within the podcast community. The other thing that's that it looks at is time of day. And there it's also very interesting. Live radio is huge around 8 a.m. basically when people wake up. This sort of tradition of waking up and putting the radio on is still very live for a lot of people, you know, whether they go into their car or whether they're in their kitchen. Uh, but then it drops quite steadily and dramatically throughout the day, whereas other types of, of, listen, of um, listening, including on-demand music and podcasts, are much... Are much more stable during the day, so it's it's not substitutive. It's a very different context in which you might listen to radio versus podcast or on-demand music. I spotted something about live radio that was really interesting, and that is, I, I love music. I love a lot of different types of music. Not so much classical, actually, more. And it's more sort of. Uh, uh, pop and rock 80s 90s 2000s i suppose and maybe some modern stuff and it said that 76 of discoverers which is what i am trying to look for the next new thing that makes me excited use live radio 
um, which you would have thought that more and more people would use algorithms. And that, thinking about it, there's something sort of cheaty about using a podcast algorithm. Whereas if you're listening to it on the radio and you discover a band, you feel you've uh, had to work harder for it in a, in a way. Particularly something like Radio 6, which works for my demographic because they play the old stuff and, and the new stuff as well. So I thought that was very interesting. And it feels like Buggles were wrong in that uh, video, on-demand video particularly, did not kill the radio star. Uh, which is quite satisfying and comforting in some way. Um, then, Claire, you were about to I, comment. Yes, I think it's also it also tells you shows the limits of algorithms because versus a live DJ, <laughs> you know. And then we we the, the, when you try to discover music through on-demand services, through playlists, etc., you're very much depending on an algorithm thinking that you're going to like a song because you liked another song. Whereas when you're listening to a specific DJ or a specific slot on a radio, you're depending on somebody else's discoveries to you know, make you discover something that yeah. they like. Uh, and it's still better. You know, it may not always be better, but right now it, it, it trumps it in terms of, uh, of breadth and variety of choices. Sort of. It's like if, if Keris Matthews or Tom Robinson tells me something's good, I'm, I'm likely to believe it rather than if Spotify does. I mean, there's, maybe there's some sort of uh, prejudice as well at play. But you're right, though. It's a little bit more organic when someone suggests something completely out of the blue and might take you in a different direction, which is actually what you want when you're discovering. You don't want more of the same. You don't want to listen to Coldplay because you like Fleetwood Mac. It's just like, oh, no, break out and do something a little bit more little bit more dangerous yeah great study obviously loads of data in it which is um which is uh, why i enjoyed it uh the rise of podcasts which is good and how people consume them and you know we 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 uh, question whether we should put out a whole thing so that people can binge the media beat but we're going to stick to uh, once every week so people can gather around the wireless as my father would say and listen to the next episode um thanks very much for sharing that with us uh Claire. Uh, moving on then, uh, Rumours uh, was uh, a massively successful segment in the, uh, in the podcast uh, last time. So we're bringing it back. It's going to be a regular thing. A few things to talk about, uh, sort of in summary. This thing which is very worrying is the cancelling of tours. Uh, bands are starting to find it less economically viable to go on tour. From a, this comes from a period of when touring music and live music had taken over from recorded music in terms of um, revenues and bands earning stuff, particularly those who are not superstars. Um, so this cancelling of tours, that's a real thing, is it, Claire? Well, it is a thing. I mean, how exactly how we're in the rumours section. We don't have numbers. It's, that's the big difference with the rumours section. We don't have to justify <laughs> this with facts. But yes, there are... Definitely signs of very big tours being either downsized or cancelled or, you know, we've had a few artists come down with unidentified illnesses uh, over the last few months and cancelling a few dates. Uh, they, I think we've come out of the pandemic and the very, very large arena tours, except for extremely large bands like, you know, um, Bruce Springsteen or the Rolling Stones, are becoming harder to, to fill. We're here. A lot of artists are also doing farewell tours for the third or fourth time because there's always a, a sense that, you know, that's going to draw the crowds who want to get a last chance of seeing their, their favorite artists. So definitely harder to feel large uh, multi-city tours. But um, 
the, the sort of counter trend to that, is, and Maureen knows a bit more about this than I do, is the residency tendency, where, where an artist may take up residency in a, in a, it started in Las Vegas, but it can happen anywhere, in a theater somewhere and do 10, 15 dates. And that's obviously much, much cheaper to run than a massive tour where you have to un, you know, rebuild and, and then take apart the set every night and then move to a different city and transport you know, 50, 60 people. Um, and it's less risky and it seems to be taking up. So maybe it's just a slight change in, in pattern of consumption of live music. Maureen? Yeah, I think this was, this was triggered by um, sort of an influx of, uh, of cancellations. So Bieber, uh, Shawn Mendes, Arlo Parks and the like, all cancelling. And, 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 and twofold there, um, it is that sort of risk of... Uh, still COVID-related uh, aspects and or if um, just the cost, just the cost of and expenses, sort of one tour could be upwards of, you know, three to five million dollars. Uh, and um, if you're shipping everyone over into location and, and you know, uh, flights and expenses, more broadly speaking, it's, it's, it's a really costly, costly activity. And if you can't guarantee, you know, uh, bums on seats. There was that hiatus as we came out of, of, of COVID where people did desperately want to get it back into into stadia. Um, but yeah, um, uh, it, it, it seems to be an issue, a bit of an issue. But as Claire was saying, yeah, this concept of residencies is, is um, surfaced again. And uh, it used to be seen as really sort of foggy, you know, foggy thing that the old bands would be in Las Vegas as the residences of 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 of, of old. But but no, uh, Harry Styles in particular is. Um, we've noted that you know he had fifteen gigs in uh, one New York venue. So sort of staying quite local, um, uh, you know, can containing those costs. Um, and then it, it looks like they're probably going to take that model and move to maybe Chicago, Austin, and the like. So that could. Would be quite interesting to see that but uh yeah yeah i think it's uh it's 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 of some significance in terms of cost and impact but we are seeing a trend here uh, next up probably another one for you maureen uh, the shareholder activist uh, the mr loeb i can't remember his christian name uh and this was the uh and this is the proposition to sell espn and it had a it had a um an unexpected uh, outcome could you just take us through that briefly Oh, and that was fascinating! Absolutely fascinating. Um, so, so uh, yeah, a lot of shareholder activism is uh, it, it tends to sort of be rife, sort of as we in recessionary times, or you know, particularly COVID, um, really triggered a lot of uh, you know, smaller shareholder interests. Uh, if they have a position or a seat on the board, they can cause a lot of problems. Um, at, for management, and we've seen that with Hasbro as well, with their uh, investment in Entertainment One, where they were back and forth trying to uh, trying to put E One on the market, trying to get rid of E One and, and the like. But when we heard the news that uh, uh, Loeb, yes, the activist, was trying to uh, to force the hand of Disney to sell ESPN, that was significant. Well, what happened was everyone rallied round, and uh, and there was a formal process. All the bankers were involved, and they put the business on mar on the market, and had um, the most amazing number of inbound, you know, expressions of interest and extremely high valuations. Uh, and then and then the board sat back down again and said, "Wow." Uh, we hadn't appreciated how valuable our asset was. And they took it off the market. So it's fascinating. <laughs> and all the bankers had to put their pens down. I shouldn't laugh because, of course, you know, it's the sort of work that we have to do as well. And 
it was uh, it was it was interesting to see that 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 um, that that kind of activism to assessment for them to realise that um, actually this is a valuable asset and they've they've taken it off the market and 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 I'm, I'm backing it, I'm backing ESPN, saying it's a it's a the prodigal the prodigal child has returned, like a free piece of due diligence consulting. <laughs> Uh, diligence is never free. Consulting is never free, Oliver. <laughs> Thank you very much. In this case, it, Disney didn't pay for it at any, at any cost. And also, it, it ties back to what we were saying about Samba, that, you know, live sport is going through, or it's going through, it's continuing to be one of the key value valuable assets. And so, uh, although the fit with the rest of the Disney portfolio is slightly less obvious than, than other things, it, you know, the value of the underlying assets is definitely still there. Yeah, they keep it as a silo business. And finally, um, uh, Movers and Shakers, which could be a subset of rumours. Um, tell me, uh, Maureen, if you would, all about Robert Kinsell. Oh, Robert Kinsell. Well, and, and also Claire's got a view on this particular person. So so Robert Kinsell has been brought in by uh, Warner Music. Uh, Warner Music has absolutely f- done phenomenally well over the last 10 years since... Uh, Blatnovic had purchased it uh, in 2011 in those sort of more distressed days. Didn't really see the probably did see the rise of, of, of streaming, but who knows? Um, but um, it's fascinating that they've now uh, asked sort of Steve Cooper to to step down, uh, who's done a fantastic job. Uh, and Robert's come in, and Robert's background is uh, is YouTube and Netflix, so uh, completely you know different different uh, capabilities, different background. Um, had been at YouTube for uh, Claire, I think it's what fifteen years or so. So it's an extraordinary move, um, in my view, and I think probably, you know, a good move, absolutely good move for Warner. Yes, it's it's interesting because uh, Netflix hired Kinsel from, um, uh, sorry, YouTuber hired next uh, Kinsel from Netflix in a in a move to understand content better. And Kinsel was a very central figure of the YouTube content strategy. He created a huge fund for a few years where creators could pitch in and and uh, get their channels funded. I actually did such a channel. It was called The Pet Collective. Uh, and it was a pet channel. And we even did the Internet Cat Video Awards, which I'm very proud of to this day. But anyway, <laughs> this was all thanks to good old Robert. Uh, but the... Um, the, the, the now Warner, one of the more traditional TV comp- uh, music companies, is hiring Kinsel back from YouTube. I think he spent, it was more than 10 years for sure. It was between 10 and 15 years that he spent at YouTube. And again, he was a fairly controversial figure at the beginning of his tenure for his focus on content and his his uh, desire to invest in content, which was quite contrary to what YouTube was doing at the time. Uh, but he ended up having a very strong influence i i would say overall probably a positive influence generally yes i will say that uh over the over youtube over the last 15 years so it'll be interesting to see what it what it will do at at warner's uh again a story will run and run and we'll be keeping our media beat eye uh, on those developments um right it's time for long and short uh, in the last few minutes uh, of this show. So let us go straight in, uh, following on from uh, what we were talking about, Scott Galloway, last time. Uh, TikTok, long or short, and it's Maureen's turn. Uh, long. Claire? Yeah, I'm long, long as well. Yeah, it seems to be too, too big to fail. Uh, talking of which, radio, Claire. Oh, long, actually, yes. Maureen? 
uh, 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 I don't want to agree with Claire again. <laughs> no, well, last week you had some fights. Uh, you've already fought me today. Did, You're did, in a combative mood, oh, Rory. I, okay, then I'm going to say, shh. shh uh, so radio, is a, that's a tricky one. So pod, podcast long. <laughs> no, you can't say that. <laughs> All right, okay. okay. I don't know long. about radio, but I know about Manchester City. No, 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 no. That's not the rule. Uh, I'm sorry, but it has to be long too. Yeah, well, that, there's nothing wrong with uh, agreeing with Claire. She's a, a very yeah, well-respected commentator right. on the industry, yeah. and she's usually yeah, that's true. And also that's usually right. Um, yeah, that's what that's what the Midas report was telling us as well. Uh, differently, though, live music. Okay, Claire. I think so. I think I'm going to say long for live music in general, short for big arena tours. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's fair, Maureen. Say yeah, live, live, but do a Travis Scott sort of uh, a fortnight sort of uh, approach, and uh, yeah, yeah, short, short for big arenas. Yeah, I think though, yeah, not that it's my job. Uh, live music will never die. Uh, that's all I can say. Sport on TV, yeah. Maureen. Uh, yeah, uh, long. Gotta be. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think I'm um, just just for the sake of disagreeing. I think what one yes, of course, that's what we've seen and that's what we've said, and it remains the thing that draws audiences. But we are seeing a lot of sports moving to streaming platforms. So whether so, it'll be interesting. I think it's definitely uh, going to be an interesting few years. I'm going to say medium short. Oh, I see. Sport on TV. Sorry, I was missing that. I was being more general about people watching sport. But mm. Sports on linear TV is what we should have said. Um, David Beckham, with reference to Sky. Uh, Maureen. Ah, right. So this is the this is the esports deal. Uh, yeah, long. Okay. Yeah, good for him. I mean, I hmm. David Beckham and esports. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go short. I, okay. I, I think it's a good deal that he's done and good good for him. Whether the whole thing is going to be worth what Sky paid for it, we'll see. Time will tell. It's funny, uh, you wonder how much of a strategy David Beckham's PR people have with regard to his um, lauding of staying in the queue for 12 hours to see Her Majesty uh, lying in state and whether that was just a coincidence or whether that was anything to do with it. And finally, um, I've forgotten how to pronounce it now, D-A-Z-N, Dazen? Dazone. Dazone. Maureen. Dazone. 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 Oh, Right, I get it. It being in that Dazone. That's a bit like what's his face back in the day in the 90s. Forgotten his name, sorry. Sasha Baron Cohen. Ali G. Ali G. In Dazone. In Dazone. Yes, sorry. Long. Dazone. That's only quite strange. Coming from you, that Maureen, it didn't seem, didn't seem quite fitting. Um, I'm sure that Maureen doesn't really talk about being in the zone very often. Maybe when you're doing an amazing presentation to an investor and you come out and you go high five all the cats and the BAs and stuff and go, that was in the zone, you crazy mothers. Um, <laughs> things that you are unlikely to say. No, doesn't. The zone. The zone. Um... I mean, this is actually, it's, this is all about streaming sports and sports on, on, on streaming platforms. They've just acquired a, a, a company called Eleven Sports, which does that. Uh, they have a lot of money. I don't know. 
yeah, long. I don't know. I don't find them very exciting, but that's just me. <laughs> oh, fair long. Can, so we've had. Can I yeah, go back to Sky and yes, David Beckham? Sorry, I know, I know. This is. Let's <laughs> go back to Sky and David Beckham. Do, do, do you know what I think? Well, that that that. that that should be viewed maybe more broadly uh, than the sponsorship deal because I think, you know, that I was fascinated to see statistics around the number of female esports players um, and that that moving across the different demographics for sports and appealing to females, of course, on the back of, you know, the whole English football team and the like. Um, I, I, I think that's a, that's a clever move and I think I like, I like that Sky is venturing in that that area like it, it, will it will it just sort of reside in Geed? you know I, I don't I don't know but I, I just I just think that's a very smart move um, to, 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 to get across that different demographic yeah people do sorry I'll, I'll, I'll um, Beckham. yeah he's, he's a likable guy uh, he played for the wrong team but he's a he's a likable guy we are at the end must remember media is important football isn't Please remember that, Oliver. Um, so uh, we have come to the end of, a, golly, a packed edition. Loved all the facts and figures and the interpretation of that. So uh, thanks very much. Uh, next time is going to be number 10. Uh, so we're going to plan something special for that. It'll be either face-to-face -face or uh, top 10 media tips to look for. But watch this space. Uh, another teaser from me this time. Claire's normally the one to tease. Uh, but it will be our 10th edition uh, next time. And we are hoping to do something special. But in the meantime, thank you very much and have a wonderful week, Claire. Thank you very much, Oliver, as always. And Maureen, uh, see you very soon, I hope. But thank you very much for, for this edition. Excellent stuff. Bye for now. Thank you very much, Oliver. Bye. See you all soon.